Podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, March 13th. Happy Daylight Savings. Make sure you move those clocks. And I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? Marveling that doing a podcast in the daylight hours again with you, buddy. Uh, it's been quite a few years, though, since I had any clocks to adjust. I guess my watch, I'm looking at that right now. So thanks for the reminder there. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. I wish the Leafs were as on time as we were. Well, it sounds like they're about as on time as I am then, with the watch still unadjusted. Good weekend, back from Ottawa? Yeah, had four days off, a very last-minute scramble where I was literally on the in the car on the way to the train station, when my boss texted me, you're not working tomorrow, <laughs> this past Friday. And that was more emotionally challenging than I expected, I guess. Like I knew it was going to be a play it by ear day. But in that situation, you can't hold out to the last minute because if you find out you're working and you're still in Ottawa, it's on you. So around noon, I kind of accepted that I was going to be working the next day got ready to leave in terms of packing and just, okay, that was a nice visit. It's done. And uh, being in the car, like you can extend this visit if you want to, or you can just go get on the train with the ticket you've already bought. Like I said, weirdly emotionally challenging, but I I don't know. That was um, interesting, but glad I did eventually go back, get the few extra days, feeling very refreshed and relaxed your weekend. It was good. Went to Toronto for the first time since uh, the holidays and got to see a lot of my family, which was lovely and uh, didn't really do too much. As things begin to open up, uh, still hesitant to go anywhere, but I think I'm just kind of conserving myself because it is going to be a couple of big weekends back to back here as I'm coaching a Frisbee tournament in Waterloo uh, during St. Patrick's Day weekend. And then as well, uh, the weekend after, of course, the big Canada soccer game. So nice to have a little bit of a a toned down weekend uh, because we'll be ramping it up for the upcoming weekends in this month. Seemingly, as is the sports calendar, (laughs) it has been a couple of months now where we've had to go through the doldrums of seasons and make it through the, the cold, harsh winter months, but we are emerging out the other side uh, in the home stretch. Raptors have 15 games left in their season. Life, Likewise, the Leafs, uh, about 25-ish left in theirs. We're getting... That happened. Or 20, I maybe. The, They're get, I thought the hockey getting, season like always has the ends and playoff start before black basketball. I thought it was after. No, it's always before. Okay. And I'm well, pretty then, sure this I'm year it was also before. <laughs> They probably have a similar number of games then remaining and baseball is back as well. And we do have a little bit of baseball to talk today. Uh, first time in a long while and uh, tennis as well. We've got Indian Wells in full swing and that's where we're going to kick off the show as Max uh, has witnessed some great matches over the weekend and ready to talk a little bit of everything today on today's podcast. So Max, without further ado. I'll kick it off with an apology to you, actually. The Leafs just 58 games played. That's 
leaves them with 24 games to go. So 25 was spot on the money. I forgot how much of the NHL season got canceled uh, and suspended. So we need, we need this quality fact checking uh, for the war. That's, that's oh what we need God. right now. Jesus. Um, Max that, checking the stats for us. Yeah. Well, you, you had my back the other day with the Djokovic fumble, which I felt <laughs> quite embarrassed about. And I've kind of also, well, that was also another fumble on my part early. So um, this is it. This is live. This is raw. And I need all the fact checking I can get. Is we're the... not, we're not, we don't put too much. I'm brutal at editing, so there's not much that goes into it. So what you hear is what you get on this podcast. It's, it's. I hope it's refreshing. Maybe it's a little frustrating, but you just take it as we go. We just take it as we go. Yeah, and uh, we'll just keep on going then, transitioning right into the tennis talk. I've just got one match to really harp on, uh, which is good because I think this will take a few minutes, but. The second round matchup that lived up to really all the hype you could guess just from who was playing uh, Rafael Nadal versus Sebastian Corda. Nadal, I've said it on this pod, the best player in the tennis world at the moment. Now, spoiler alert, now 16 and 0 on the year. And so his ranking being at fourth or fifth seed in the tournament, um, way, way undervalued, just a result of injuries missing out on two grand slams, uh, where if he had played half as well as he's, as he's playing right now, he would be in the number two or number one seed, I believe. Uh, Corda, a young up and coming player, not there on the consistency to go deep in grand slams yet, but I think a year from now, you can easily see him top 30, maybe even top 20 where Alcaraz is now. So two undervalued players equals by far the best matchup you could get in the second round draw. And not a crazy high level of tennis from both sides for an entire match type of thriller, but a real back and forth, keep you on the edge of your seat. You don't know what's going to happen thriller, which can be just as fun. That first tilto went to Rafa. Uh, He got the two breaks up for nothing as the match got underway. It it just seemed like Corda had nothing for him offensively. Uh, His serve wasn't, doing enough damage or consistent enough and then as soon as Rafa locked in that first second third shot on the rally Corda just fell into his rhythm and it it's that classic or the style that's become incredibly characteristic of Nadal and Djokovic over the past couple of years where they're not hitting winner after winner they're not trying to punish you and end it in one shot they just know that they can consistently make a higher level of shot than you for a longer duration. And they'll take the extended rally until you get uncomfortable, you get nervous, you try and force a winner out and eight times out of 10, you don't hit that winner. Uh, 
all that in the first set, Rafa goes up for nothing. Corda does start to hold his serve as the thing set gets on, but that was just kind of pressures off. The set's done. I think it did let him get into a bit more of a groove though. In the second set though, actually Corda was serving to start and the first two points went exactly how it was looking before. Unforced errors more from Corda as opposed to the first set, which had some like forced unforced errors. I would call those situations in the rallies I just described. Uh, but then Nadal, two unforced errors right back the other way. Uh, he really like heavily mistimed a couple backhands. It was kind of bizarre. It wasn't like close. and he just stumbled. That's really the only way to describe that set from Nadal. Um, Korda ended up taking it 6-1 and more double faults from Rafa. Um, but the other big change, the second serve was also a huge part of Rafa's game in the first set and that disappeared in the second. The big change though was Korda kind of, you saw the gears click in his head where it was like, okay, if we go 10, 15 shots into a rally and I'm not, it's not a rally where I'm just punishing him and making him run back and forth, he's going to win the point. I need to get a hold of these rallies earlier and I need to accept a little more risk to do that. But somehow that conviction made his play tighter, like arguably stepping into the serve, taking it, trying winners down the line it, it actually improved his shot making and less or unforced errors just the power of confidence the power of momentum so a 6-1 second set sees uh 6-2 and then 6-1 had no idea what we were going to get in the third set but both players came out probably for their extended best they went 2-2 uh neither threatening incredibly tensely on the serve, like no love 40 games or anything, but competitive testing each other, asking the questions and both answering them maybe a little better than they had all match. And then in that fifth game on Nadal's serve, we saw a really extended deuce uh, just kept going back and forth, each player having chances to close out the game. And you know that can be a real momentum killer when you force break point after break point, you don't get it, then you have to go serve just to catch up and stay even. So it seemed like an incredible amount of momentum on the line, whether Nadal held or Corda broke. And so impressive with Corda's willpower and resilience in this game because he did eventually pull it off. Uh, chances he'd missed before didn't matter. Every time Nadal got the chance to serve out the game, didn't matter. Corda came back, showed out, out so much the ability to just hang in there. Finally takes it, holds again. And then the next game, Rafa, two double faults um, and not at like love, love. At, I think he was up 30 or one double fault gave Corda like from 30 to 40 and the other one lost Nadal the game. Really bizarre timing. I think the main thing was Nadal had so much success with the second serve, especially in that first set that he was accepting a bit higher risk on his shot selection on those second serves, maybe even unconsciously. Uh, so two breaks up for Corda. It seemed like the match was over at 5-2. And then Nadal, no, then uh, Corda holding or up to serve right after those double faults and he choked. It, it happens. Um, the pressure is so big. Nadal, his biggest idol, I believe, growing up as a tennis fan. Um, 
multiple opportunities to end it. The one that was really brutal, though, he charged the net really well, hit one down the line. Nadal got the ball up, and you saw Korda look at it, think it might be going out, then change his mind, chase it backwards, and like do a backwards volley on it. So obviously, like no easy shot and an easy put away for Nadal to return that. And on the replay, you saw that ball was going out. Um, that the kind of thing that gives me sleepless nights anyway. So it was no surprise really to see Nadal battle back. I, I mean, down to break, like we've just seen it so many times. And like, I think maybe my hope that if Nadal lost, it meant Chapo wouldn't have to face him, kind of coloring my judgment of the situation or something. I, I really, I forgot what Rafa does and he did it evens it back up on uh, credit to Corda for holding half getting winning the sixth game on his serve because Nadal could have just taken it seven five there but we did go to the tie break or shootout I'm not sure what we're calling those and uh, all match the game had been on Corda's racket he was the one stepping up trying to find the winners Nadal was happy to let him do that or unable to do anything about it either one at different times throughout the match. But he took the initiative in that tie break. He started to be the one to step up and no surprise. He, at, in the big moment, he steps up and makes the right shots, takes control of most of the rallies. Corda uh, did actually go up early in the tie break, but uh, again, Rafa just put the pressure on, applied it, and Corda uh, couldn't hold it. And Nadal ultimately wins that in three sets, uh, a huge test. Your first, it looked like that undefeated streak might end. It was a fantastic tennis match, though, and just, I feel like such a broken record talking about these two. I, they need to find some new ways to win or uh, double the pressure on Rafa now that it's really just him that we're watching these days. Um, but just goat shit nothing but goat shit from Rafael Nadal. Uh, fantastic tennis and really excited for the third round matchup he'll have. Uh, facing the British Daniel Evans, the fourth round is where it gets a lot more interesting, I'd say, but there are plenty of fun third round matchups in the draw. We're going to have Daniel Medvedev, number one in the world, who got through smoothly against Guy Monfi, who's had a pretty nice start to 2022. Uh, Denis Shapovalov and Riley Opelka going to be going at it, uh, rematching the Australian Open, which might have also been the third round. Maybe it was the fourth. Uh, Shapo took that one. He had a really good interview answer when uh, asked how he felt about the matchup. Oh, he said, I'm not going to be playing any tennis tomorrow. I'm just going to be goalkeeping because that's basically what you have to do against Opelka. Um, very similar to his fellow American Isner, who got the win today, 7-6, uh, 7-6. That's always such a terrifying scoreline to me, as opposed to like a 7-6, 6-7, because it just says like perfect serve. You can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter how good you are on your serve. I'm still going to win. Uh, Nick Kyrgios facing Casper Rudd. Kyrgios has won two matches now because he was a wild card in the first round. Uh, Rudd, probably the worst hardcourt player in the top 10. The clay court season really brings his ranking up. Uh, so 
Nick Kyrgios with some momentum. And then we're going to have the young Carlos Alcaraz versus Robert Batista Gu, two top 20 Spaniards in the world. Uh, then I'm almost done hero and you can get to whatever it is you're reacting to uh, in the bottom half of the draw the second round going on right now Andre Rublev the only really notable uh, top seed to make it through Andy Murray unfortunately out uh, Felix Auger Aliasim mid game right now they're in the third set great news to see that Felix took the shootout in the second set after losing the first set uh, hopefully we'll have an update for, on that at the end of the pod, though the score line results will be out on that by the time that this pod has been released. That's all the tennis talk for now. Oh, I don't know if you want to transition to basketball or tell me what you're seeing on the hockey screen. Well, as of right now, it's a 3-2 game for Buffalo. Of course, naturally, Leafs can't win any important game. Um, and there's a review underway to see if the Buffalo Sabres scored a fourth in this game as the net was knocked off. It was done by Peter Mrazek and the puck did go in. So I imagine they're going to end up calling this a goal and make it four, two, which is lovely. So lovely. They were up two one and TJ Brody tried to block a pass and it went into his own net. So just a classic Leafs game here, uh, a game where Tampa Bay did lose to Edmonton last night and they had a chance to jump them in the standings. And again, the, the Morazic's been solid for the majority of the game, but four goals can't go in. Uh, like that's just, it's been the standard this entire month for the Leafs. And if they cannot have consistent net minding, this team's not going to go anywhere. And they're showing us shots of Shanahan and Dubas wearing their, uh, whatever those things are called. <laughs> The little hats they used to wear back in the day. We're getting the review live now. They're going to call this a goal for sure. Yep. And so time to turn it off. Leafs down 4-2. <laughs> and uh, a bummer uh, to an otherwise really exciting and fun game. The Toronto Arena's jerseys were excellent. I love going vintage. Um, there's something to be said about simple uniforms end up being the nicest. Uh, and I really liked it. Sabres were all right, but the, the frigid temperatures, the conditions, the wind was supposedly a big factor in this game. Um, didn't really end up being so, in my opinion, just with how the, the game has gone offensively. And the big story coming in was Mrazic was under the microscope. He needed a big performance. No Jack Campbell now for a couple of weeks, and he couldn't give it to him. He couldn't give it to him. And, uh, it's just tough that you've got two more years and a lot of money left on this contract that just has not worked out so far. And I mean, with goalies, you never know he could turn it around, but this late in the season, you're really looking for something better uh, than what you're getting from the starting goalies. And yeah, another disappointing result for the Leafs. They very well could come back in this game, but that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in seeing them play a complete defensive performance and have solid goaltending and just haven't seen that in two months now from a team that we keep saying they're fifth in the league. But if you go in terms of since the all-star break, definitely not as close to the top in that regard. And they need to be there. So we'll move on from hockey because <laughs> I'm not in a good mood anymore. 
yourself back into a good mood, why don't we kick off our basketball storylines with some raps talk, back-to-back wins? Yeah, this very well could be the the biggest two results of the Raptors season. Uh, they go into Phoenix and they beat the number one team in the league record-wise. I mean, no Chris Paul, but even still, this Phoenix team uh, has consistently won no matter who's been in the lineup all year. And it came down to the wire. And Gary Trent Jr. with 42 points in that game was excellent, made some tough shots. Uh, The Raptors only had six points in the fourth quarter until about three minutes left. And Gary hit some tough shots and made some clutch free throws down the stretch. And because the offense was scuffling, the Raptors really had to lean into some tough, tough defensive performances. And uh, it was highlighted by Scotty Barnes, who continues to be excellent and exemplary as everything you could want out of a first year player. Uh, He gets back to back steals on possessions and one of them ends with a dunk and the Raptors end up taking that huge win in Phoenix. And then the next night purely they win this game off of effort. Uh, I think they had 22 offensive rebounds, 21 offensive rebounds in the game, like just pure hustle. And with Nikola Jokic spread out guarding Precious Achua around the three-point line, Precious made him have to, too. He hit three threes in the game. With Jokic spread out, it was a lot of small players on the court vying for defensive rebounds for the Nuggets. And Chris Boucher, most notably with nine himself, uh, Kem Birch, Scotty Barnes, Pascal, they all were making the Nuggets pay with their size and length and and Thaddeus Young as well jumping in there. They were getting offensive rebounds and the energy on the second half of the back-to-back was huge to have on the road as it's it's tough. You play in two of the top teams in the West and you go out and you win back-to-back to pull yourself within one game of the Cleveland Cavaliers for the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference. The other big piece that I loved about this win for the Raptors was no Fred Van Vliet. And so they didn't really have a point guard in the lineup. Delano Banton comes off the bench, uh, gives them five assists in 17 minutes, was awesome tonight. Uh, They had Armani Brooks starting, uh, who they just signed to a 10-day contract. And so interesting to see how it would happen. And Pascal and Scotty Barnes did a great job running this offense uh, as well as you could ask for guys who don't typically play the point guard position and um, they did well Pascal was awesome in the first three quarters creating his shot in a variety of ways and then the Raptors really relying on their defense again to hold it out at the end Uh, I don't think the Nuggets Nikola Jokic didn't have any points in the fourth after breezing to a near triple double through three quarters but um, again locking in defensively There was a lineup out on the floor at one point. I think it was Barnes, Boucher, Birch, Thaddeus Young, and Delano Banton. So Boucher's the best shooter out of that group. And they went on an 18-8 to run uh, in the last two minutes of the third and then the first two minutes of the fourth quarter. And that really helped set the course for them to win this game in the fourth with Nikola Jokic off. And their length was disruptive and... On the other end, the, they weren't shooting well, but they were getting every single offensive rebound and, and working it back in. So an excellent stretch for them. They needed, they've, they've had the worst bench in the year, in the league for most of the year. And so they really needed this performance, a couple of guys that aren't in the starting lineup to step up, especially without Fred and without OG last night. So they get another test tomorrow night 
against the Los Angeles Lakers. Is it who, a test? It, always a test when you go up against LeBron, as we saw from the Washington Wizards who gave up the second 50-point performance by LeBron James in as many weeks. Uh, drops 50 on him, a couple big threes, uh, was playing to the crowd for sure. And the Lakers are just trying to tread water and maintain the, their spot in the play-in tournament. They most likely will. But, um, yeah, without Anthony Davis, with Russell Westbrook playing the way that not many expected him to. Uh, West benched. <laughs> yikes. With, with no Kendrick Nunn all year. And just, yeah, this Lakers roster not being nearly as talented as people were expecting it to be. It's still a test every time you go up against LeBron James uh, at Crypto.com Arena, but the Raptors just going to have to dig deep again on this West Coast road trip. They play the Lakers, and then they do have the Clippers on Wednesday as well. So it's a big week for them to swing through the West. The Cavs are are dropping a couple games. They do have The Cavaliers do have the tiebreaker, though, so the Raptors will need to jump one game ahead of them in the standings by the end of the year, and the number of games to do so keep ticking away. So fascinating to see how this run is going to end. But what I do know is they want to avoid the nets in the play in because just as recently as this afternoon, Kevin Durant goes for 53, nine and six uh, against the New York Knicks in the battle of New York calls out Evan Fournier after he hits a tough midi over him. Uh, does the, the tiny, uh, what is this? The gesture and says, uh, too small in French. He says it in French to Evan Fournier just to cap it off. And there's a beautiful piece of trash talk to back up a great performance in the nets. Um, they're chasing the Raptors for the seven seed. Now it'd be excellent to, to be the team that has home court advantage in both their playing opportunities. If it comes to that, but I'd love Especially to see the Raptors the jump. Yes, I would love to see the Raptors jump into that sixth spot, though, and just avoid the play-in altogether. It does seem like a possibility. You can get hot enough to do that in 15 games and not fear the decline. But yeah, you're just looking for the Nets and the Cavs. Yep, exactly. And you're just looking for maybe a 10 and five, and you hope the Cavs go even down the stretch. Um, Now the Cavs could be worse than that. The Raptors could be worse. It variety of scenarios but you've put yourself at least with a chance uh to capture that and it is going to be interesting to see with og and fred battling some injuries probably a couple other guys battling will they really push for that six seed or if they if things look grim near the end will they start resting guys in anticipation for needing them for the plan so a tough tough act to juggle there for nick nurse All right, last couple notes here in basketball. Greg Popovich becomes the winningest head coach in NBA history, getting his 1,336th win uh, with the San Antonio Spurs last night against Utah Jazz. Um, He has more wins than about five or six franchises, including the Raptors uh, in the league, although he did start coaching in 1996, which was a year after the Raptors inaugural season but just a testament to how impressive his performance has been throughout his career so many titles so many wins uh had 20 consecutive years making the playoffs he had some all-time generational talents in tim duncan in david robinson in Kawhi leonard tony parker manu ginobili but 
they all feed into this system and they're time and time again, where the Spurs would produce quality, quality players and guys who always knew what to do with the ball and be in the right spots. And the newest iteration of this is the success Derek white has had on the Boston Celtics. He just knows how to move the ball. Um, he's a product of pop system. And so shout out to Greg Popovich, an incredible career and has left NBA fans with many, many memorable moments. I was going to say many generational players were lucky enough to have him um, this milestone of long accepted fact and fact and no surprise. So congratulations to Popovich. All right. Our last bit of basketball here uh, involves the Boston Celtics um, honoring another great part of NBA history, Kevin Garnett having his Jersey lifted to the rafters and, uh, this Celtics team has been red hot. Uh, they were up to the force or the five seed in the East after being as low as the ninth seed just a couple months ago. Um, they're playing really well. Their defense is number one in the league. And we saw that in the first half. Uh, the emotion was high in, in the garden and the Celtics only allowed 38 points uh, to the Dallas Mavericks who have a pretty efficient and prolific offense. Uh, led by, of course, Luka Doncic. And it was capitalized by a monster crushing <laughs> Jalen Brown posterization of Maxi Kleba. Um, definitely a travel, but really fun to see him dunk all over Maxi in the paint there. But the Mavericks, a team with a lot of resilience, uh, they're fighting for playoff positioning and jockeying for a great matchup. And they are fifth in the Western Conference here with an opportunity to gain some space from Denver after uh, the Raptors win last night. And Luka Doncic down the stretch doing his thing. They get a couple stops near the end and Doncic double teamed, no look pass out to Spencer Dinwiddie who hits a deep three. And we already mentioned the instant impact Dinwiddie's had, but this is a big time clutch shot to help the Mavericks win they take the game 95 to 92 and spoil the celebration uh in boston as the the, the celtics were really crescendoing near the end there uh, as as the leafs give up an empty netter so that's really gonna spoil the party in hamilton a couple of parties spoiled today but what can you say uh big win for dallas always nice to see the celtics lose and that's gonna wrap up basketball storylines for this one you're so happy there for that whole segment just till the end <laughs> what else we got a couple last notes here football fan cave uh dallas cowboys fans i don't know what to tell you i'm sorry i guess uh they've still got plenty of weapons but number one wide receiver amari cooper is headed to the cleveland browns along with the sixth round pick for a fifth and sixth round pick from Cleveland. So essentially you're swapping Cooper for a fifth football trades are weird, man. It's, it's not, what? it's not like your normal, uh, normal sport guys get moved for nothing. Obviously in this case, they did not want to pay Cooper. And so they're moving him for whatever compensation they can get. Cleveland now has a replacement for Odell Beckham jr. Who they uh, waived last season. And he went and won a super bowl with the Rams um, Cleveland as well, also mentioning in the news that they have allowed Jarvis Landry to seek out a trade. So Cooper will not necessarily have that top running mate, although Rashad Higgins is emerging as a solid wide receiver option in Cleveland. Um, 
but the Browns do have another now wide receiver one that Baker Mayfield can target and we'll see how Cooper fares in in Cleveland where it's a team that is definitely built more heavily on the run than Dallas and not necessarily as talented a quarterback in Baker Mayfield uh, as opposed to Dak Prescott if you're the Cowboys You've still got CeeDee Lamb and Michael Gallup, and Cedric Wilson and Dalton Schultz and Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. And you could run down the list, uh, still a star-studded offense, but that's a big name to miss out on because Amari Cooper was their, their best receiver last year and their most targeted receiver. So something to be said about losing a big piece of your offense, and we'll see how that affects both teams coming up. But some more big moves happening in the NFL. Zach Ertz. Uh, signing an extension with the Cardinals today. So that's an important piece for them to keep. They haven't seen him yet alongside DeAndre Hopkins, but that's a big couple of weapons for Kyler Murray to have uh, heading into the next season. The last bit of news we have here, baseball, baseball. We've got baseball here on Sports Next Door. Spring training has kicked off. Games are going to start shortly. And the Blue Jays making the first big move out of the lockout. They sign uh, Seattle pitcher Yusei Kikuchi to a three-year, $36 million deal. He is going to be the Steven Matz replacement. Um, last year, nothing spectacular from Kikuchi. 4.4 uh, ERA and a 1.32 whip. Not outstanding numbers, but the big key number here. And baseball is full of stat nerds and people who love numbers i'm one of those people as well but in this case the big number that's the most important for me is he pitched 157 innings last year and if he's slated to be your number five starter and you can get another 150 out of him that is far and away more than you could ask for in baseball is is a grind like it might be the biggest grind out of any of the sports where you play every day 162 games is so many and pitchers get depleted and there is just inevitable attrition that happens on these rosters. And so now the blue Jays where pitching was a major weakness last year, it's starting to look like a strength uh, heading into next year. They have a solid four for sure in their rotation consisting of ACE uh, Jose Barrios, former ACE Hunjin Ryu, um, up-and-coming star Alec Manoa, and then big free agent acquisition in Kevin Gosman, who, and all four of those guys at any given time could give you a spectacular outing. And then that fifth spot um, last year or two years ago was their whole rotation was occupied by guys who might not even fit in the fifth spot now. Uh, Kikuchi could go there. Ross Stripling could go there. Nate Pearson could go there. They just are accumulating arm talent and it's really important for them to have that flexibility. And this is a big piece for them to grab before the season starts. They also grabbed reliever uh, Vasquez and the Blue Jays, man, they're really dialing it in. They're continuing to acquire pitching talent to go with this ridiculously uh, disastrous lineup that just makes opposing pitchers days nightmares. And their last piece of of need, I would really say, is the defense. Looking for another utility infielder, um, a reliable defensive player who can play all around the diamond. And then, of course, you're always looking for more relief pitching. Uh, you can never have enough. It's it's impossible. No team has is ever comfortable and can say confidently that they're happy with their relief pitching staff just because of how much wear and tear happens and how much uh, 
things go in rotation in that part of the roster. So it's a big move for the Jays to get that uh, guy who can chew up innings. And it just, it makes me even more exciting because you forget about the investment that they've made over the past couple of off seasons. This is the most money that the Jays have ever spent on a roster. And hopefully we finally get to see it come to fruition in a year where we can actually have fans in the stands the whole season. So really looking forward to baseball now. Um, Somehow MLB, even with all the terrible things that have happened and the terrible decisions made and the lockout, I'm still probably going to come back and watch. <laughs> and and I am definitely not the target demographic. So interesting to see. Uh, but yeah, another sport nearing for us to talk about as we head into the spring. Maybe I'll jump in on the baseball bits uh, in a bit when Bernie Sanders motioned to I can't quite remember what he wants to hit the league with, but uh, he had a pretty interesting Twitter post. I had it queued up to read last episode and not this episode. Um, Literally anything creative that you could think of is better than what baseball is doing right now. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll excited to see how that one unfolds in the, I, how many weeks away are we then? Uh, it'll start April 11th, I believe, is okay. opening day. So just, just under a month. Yeah, it'll be here before you know weeks. it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, looking forward to it. As we know, Selection Sunday also today did not talk about college basketball, but March Madness is getting underway by the end of this week. And so lots and lots of sports to talk about as we get into this stretch run of the spring. Um, can only go up from here. And thank you, everyone, for being along for the ride to listen to us. Uh, we appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this one. Sports Next Door, signing out.